Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Dr. John Newfeld on Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series Heaven with a message entitled The Intermediate State. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verse 32, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. During the second missionary journey of Paul as recorded in Acts 17, Paul has arrived in Athens, which is the center of Greek thinking, both in terms of religion and philosophy. And as Paul is waiting for his missionary team to join him, the Bible says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Representations of gods and goddesses, a religious practice utterly condemned in the Bible, was the very nature of Greek culture and thought. And so Paul begins a discourse, a dialogue, a process of reasoning regarding faith in Christ. He starts in a Jewish synagogue, but soon finds himself in a marketplace, which in that culture was completely acceptable. The marketplace was most likely a reference to the Athens famous Agora, a place where religious dialogue was common and welcome. Paul created such a stir that he was finally taken to the Areopagus, a place where some very famous trials were held in the, in the past. And in this appropriate setting, they asked him to give an account for himself and his teaching. All was going well. People were engaged, willing to dialogue, wanting to hear more, until according to the account, Paul indicates that God had fixed a date wherein he would judge the world through the man he had appointed. He, of course, was referring to Jesus. So far, everyone's listening. Now then, Paul adds, God has given assurance that this is the man who will judge the world by raising him from the dead. According to Luke's account of this event, when the leading intellectuals of Athens heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, why would the mocking have begun at the very mention of the resurrection? Those of you who know something of Greek culture and Greek thought during those days will know that the idea of life after death was well accepted and established in Greek belief systems. For instance, the very famous incident of Socrates' death in which he was forced to drink deadly hemlock, an account given to us by his student Plato, recounts Socrates had a very happy disposition when he drank the hemlock because he expected to live after his own death. Most Greeks did. What then brought the mockery when Paul mentioned the resurrection of Jesus? Well, the answer is quite simple. Paul's description of the resurrection centered on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, crucified, laid into a tomb, steps out of the tomb bodily. His dead body is now not only raised to life, but is transformed at the same time to be a body that is no longer subject to death, disease, or decay. In Greek thinking, the body was the prison house of the soul. Greeks were the ultimate dualists who made a radical distinction between the body and the soul. Let me help us understand Greek thoughts around life after death and help some of us understand that rather than having adopted a biblical view of life after death, so many of us have inadvertently brought into our understanding of what happens at death a Greek philosophical notion and not a biblical one. Let me start with Plato, who was the disciple of Socrates. For Plato, there was a visible world and an invisible spiritual world. The great creator created the soul of the universe, and the highest part of the soul of man was made of the same substance as the soul of the universe. But, taught Plato, there is a part of the soul and of the creation of the human body that was entrusted to and created by younger gods. And this lower aspect of the soul and of the physical world is inferior to pure spirit. 
For Plato, the body was the enemy of the soul and serves as a kind of prison house of the soul. Upon death, the souls of wise men and philosophers who have purified themselves from the pollution of the body depart from bodily existence into pure spirit. You know, another famous Greek philosopher, a man named Plutarch, carried this thought even further. The soul, he said, survives after death of the body, but must be purged of all that belongs to the body and must be reduced to mind or intellect alone, which is the highest part of the soul. So both for Plato and Plutarch, they spoke of the body as the enemy of the soul, the prison house of the soul. It's like a sackcloth robe, they said, or a tomb or a grave. Some souls, they argued, sink beneath the stream into bodily materiality so that the vision of heaven is lost entirely. And that's why when Paul spoke of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the Greek philosophers in Athens mocked. Body, flesh, the physical realm, all of these are of a lower order that we must escape from, not be resurrected into. Do you see the issue? Now let's go to John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this verse expresses the very heart of the gospel. The most amazing event in all of history, an event of inexpressible beauty, is when the eternal Son clothed Himself in human flesh. Now, the Greeks would have been appalled. Flesh is a lower level of existence. And yet for John and 1 John 1, 1, John would write, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this we proclaim to you. In other words, the greatest, most wonderful thing that has ever happened, happened in flesh and blood, in a real body with fingers and eyes and sights and sounds. We are declaring not a spiritual ideal apart from matter, but we are proclaiming that God stepped into the human story, that God stepped into flesh and blood. John thought that this was so important that in 1 John 4, verses 2 to 3, he writes, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, why is so much made of the physicality of Jesus? Why are those who deny the full humanity of Jesus so thoroughly condemned? Well, for one, because this has everything to do with the God of the Bible. Even though God is not physical, but is himself pure spirit, yet he, out of his goodness, created a physical world, which according to Psalm 19, verse 1, declares the glory of God. And according to Isaiah 43, verse 7, the creation of human beings, well, that's for God's glory. So let's remember what the Bible actually teaches about, first, the physical world, and then secondly, about our human physical body. According to Genesis 1, 31, when God finished creating the world, he said it was very good. A lesser deity did not create this world. The great, omnipotent, all-wise creator created it and was very pleased with what he had made. And that theme keeps coming up in the Bible. According to Psalm 29, verse 3, physical thunder is the voice of God. According to Romans 1, even if you've never had a Bible, you'll know something about God simply by observing the creation. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. But the glory of God is also seen in the creation of man. 
In Genesis 2, verse 7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Unlike Greek thought, where the body is a lower level of existence, here the body is essential to our humanity. We are both physical of the dust of the earth and immaterial, having the breath of God within. Let me say it again. Bodily existence is essential to being human. To be human is essentially to be physical and spiritual at the same time. In his excellent systematic theology, author Michael Horton puts it well. Man is bodily, and therefore the scriptural way of expressing this truth is not that man has a body, but that man is body. Scripture does not represent the soul or spirit of man as created first and then put into a body. The body is not an appendage. Now, why am I speaking this way? The answer is that so many of us think of heaven as non-physical, entirely a spiritual realm. And the reason we think that is because unwittingly we have drunk in Greek philosophy and not biblical revelation. I've been at more than one funeral where a preacher has said, this is just a man's working clothes. It's not the real him anyway. But is that really biblical? The idea that we are simply a spirit in a box, so to speak, a genuine essential person in our spirits or souls in which the real spiritual essence of who we are is released at the death of our bodies is an entirely Greek idea and has no bearing on Scripture. I heard one preacher say, I'm a spirit being who happens to live in a body. See, he has betrayed that he is Greek and not biblical in his thinking. Now, through this series, I will return to that, that our future must be thought of in real, physical, bodily terms. But for today, as we think about the intermediate state, that time between our death and the resurrection of our bodies at the second coming of Christ, how are we to think about what occurs immediately at our death? We know that Paul has taught us that right after we die, it is better by far, and so we accept that. We know that we still await our new bodies at the second coming. And does that mean from the time of our death until the second coming, we have no body at all? Now, we're going to answer that question when we come back. In the next two months, Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld will be a key speaker at the Promise Keeper Canada Quest Conferences. This is an incredible opportunity to equip, encourage, and challenge men of all ages in their daily walk with Christ. And Back to the Bible Canada is excited to do its part. So join us in Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. All dates and information for registration can be found at promisekeepers.ca. Or if you're interested in all the Bible teaching resources available to you through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or our young adult ministry in doubt, or to support this ministry committed to Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget, this month only, Dr. Newfeld's new series, Celebration of Marriage, is available on CD as our free ministry gift. Just ask. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca. It is so important to begin to think about what happens to a believer immediately after they die. For those of us who are facing the end of our lives now, this must become a very important part of our thinking. And for those who have had loved ones pass on, they too need hope. 
Jesus gave that kind of hope to the thief who was hanging next to him on the cross. In Luke 23, verse 43, he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. We noticed that Jesus said it would happen this day, not when I return a second time. And the term paradise speaks of a garden. It also has a reference to a place like the Garden of Eden. The word is used in only two other places in the New Testament. The next occurrence happens in 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4. There, Paul uses it in terms of a vision. There he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. Now, I'm aware that this verse is a mouthful, but I don't want to get into it any more than simply to notice that the term third heaven and the term paradise are synonymous. For Paul, the term heaven can be used in three ways. He can speak about the first heaven as simply the atmosphere over our heads. Then he can speak about the second heaven, which refers to space. That would be the place of the sun, moon, and the stars, and so forth. And he can speak of the third heaven as the dwelling place of God. And Paul says that the dwelling place of God is the same location as paradise. So when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, he means a lovely place, which is the realm that God created to make his presence known. Okay, I said that there are three New Testament references to paradise. The third is found in Revelation 2 verse 7, a message which Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, please notice that the reference to the tree of life is first found in Genesis 2.9, where the Garden of Eden is being described, and it has as one of the trees the tree of life. Evidently, Adam and Eve had never eaten from that tree because in Genesis 3, verse 22, after they had sinned, they were driven out of the garden. And one of the reasons given for driving them out was lest that man should reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. All of that to say that when Jesus promised the thief on the cross that he would be with him in paradise that day, he was promising him a garden in the presence of God where he would eat from a tree and live forever. And anyone dying in Christ today has promised that the very same thing will happen to them on the very day of their death. No, you won't go into unconscious existence until Christ returns. You will enter paradise today. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in the vision that he had, he does not know if it was in the body or out of the body. And for a great many Bible teachers, the intermediate state is when we live without the body in paradise while we await the resurrection of the body at the second coming of Christ. And that idea of a disembodied spirit has some of us concerned. Even though Paul says that state is better than our state here in this fallen earth, by far, he says, we're less than convinced. Drifting about as a disembodied spirit seems to go against the very essence of the Bible's teaching on the importance of the body. After all, we're not a spirit who happens to live in a body. We are real physical beings who are created to live for eternity. So let's see what the Bible actually teaches about the intermediate state. Let me begin by admitting we don't have a clear teaching on this matter, but we do have a clear teaching on the importance of the body and of the physical realm. So where do we start? 
Well, perhaps the place to start would be Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus found in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. Now, I noticed several features about that story. When the rich man died and was buried, we next encounter him in Hades, and he's in torment. He looks, and at a distance, he sees Abraham with Lazarus being comforted at his side. And then he calls out. He wants Lazarus to bring him water to cool his tongue. Now, if that parable is to be taken at face value, it seems to have all the marks of physical existence, seeing with eyes, and complaining of physical anguish, even speaking about a real physical tongue and longing for physical water. But should we press this parable to make it say that much? Well, clearly the point of the parable is that immediately after death, both the righteous and the unrighteous become immediately aware of their eternal spiritual status. But does that necessarily mean that that status should be spoken of as physical? Well, let's see if there are any other hints in the Bible. The Bible records several occasions in which people actually saw those who had died. And one of those is recorded in 1 Samuel 28, the incident in which Saul calls a medium, and to the woman's surprise, Samuel actually appears. Saul asks, what does he look like? And she describes him as an old man, and he is wrapped in a robe. Now, the idea of a physical robe might not be surprising, but it is the idea that Samuel would appear physically old that might strike us as surprising. We might want to compare this with a mount of transfiguration described in Matthew 17. Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus onto a high mountain, and there they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and Peter suggests he make three tents for them, which would indicate that Moses and Elijah came bodily speaking with Jesus. Finally, we might also do well to consider the book of Revelation. Since John describes a scene in heaven, in which the righteous dead appear before Christ and still await the second coming of Jesus, and hence they await their final resurrection body, we might do well to ask, what form of existence do they take? A text that is often considered by Bible teachers is found in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. Then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. The picture is a picture of the martyrs. They are pictured as being under the altar. The altar was the place of sacrifice. And they, having been sacrificed on the altar of their faith, are being honored by being allowed to dwell in this sacred place. Well, that's fine and well, but the reader is immediately struck by the phrase, the souls of those. Now, from our reading, it's very easy to say that at this point, they are not pictured as having bodies, but merely existing in the form of souls. Well, as convincing as that might be, I noticed verse 11 in which they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. The image there seems to be that the white robe is a robe of honor that marks their special place as martyrs. A robe, however, sounds physical, and we're left to wonder how a disembodied spirit should wear a physical robe. Of course, this all could be highly symbolic language, but I notice that whenever language is used to speak of those in the intermediate state, the language is always language which employs physical bodily existence, and that is entirely aligned with what the Bible speaks of as the real essential nature of man. So what can we say? It seems clear that our final state, 
the receiving of our resurrected bodies is different than the intermediate state. But we also notice that their existence is better by far from what we now experience on earth, and since the saints in heaven now are portrayed in physical ways, it seems quite probable that God designs an intermediate body for all who die in Christ today. After all, they are in a garden of paradise, they are invited to eat of the tree of life, and when we see them, they're wearing robes and described physically, and so much more. So what should all of this say to us today? Well, don't fear death, and don't fear when this body, which will soon wear out, is laid into the earth. For the moment you die, you will enter paradise, and you will see God, and you will eat, and you will drink, and you'll wear a mighty fine robe. Be content that your God knows what you need to live life to its full, and there will be nothing lacking in his presence in paradise. John, I think this is a message a lot of people have needed to hear. Uh, Probably a lot of questions in their minds that go on. But here's a little bit of an odd question. Uh, We all recognize that we're going to be raised in our physical bodies or we're going to be given physical bodies. Uh, But does that mean our present bodies? Does that mean there's going to be babies there and older people? Does that mean I'm going to be 12 years old or 32 years old or be in the body I have right now? Yeah, I'll tell you when we get there, Ben. So ask me then. I mean, you know, there are so many things the Bible does say, and there are a number of things it does not say. And uh, I do know that, uh, you know, if, if it seems fearful to you that you'll have an old body, I would respond by saying that whatever God does in our bodies in eternity, he does perfectly. And so there'll be nothing lacking. There'll be no lack of energy. There'll be no lack of insight. There'll be no lack of this body doing that which it was designed to do. So have no fear, however we think about these matters and, and about the things that the Bible is, is you know, silent about. Uh, let's be content to say there are some mysteries that are not yet explored. Can I ask you another question? Uh, last time and this time again, we're going to be giving away Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. And that's a special book, and you've enjoyed that book. How come? Well, I've enjoyed Randy Alcorn, uh, a lot of his books, uh, for some time. And w- I started reading his stuff when I, when I started reading some of his novels. And what I found intriguing about his novels is that when a character dies in the novel, unlike any other novel I've ever read, that character doesn't stop existing. He continues to tell their story on the other side. A- and so he really brings together what is reality. Uh, when someone dies, they continue to exist, and whether or not we're talking about heaven or hell, he, he describes that, and, and that got me interested in the rest of his stuff. Well, we'll probably talk more about that booklet in the future days, but for right now, back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Just a reminder that our first 2017 issue of Truth in Life magazine is available this month, so you'll want to subscribe now to ensure you receive your very own copy of our bi-monthly ministry magazine. The February issue is focused on relationships. How do we honor God in our relationships? And for 2017, we'll have two new featured articles, one based on your questions arising from our new Truth in Life Today program, and another by Pastor Ray Duick, sharing a pastoral response to the specific theme of the current magazine. 
These articles, along with regular features from Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt's Isaac Dagno, our Bible reading plan, and so much more. So don't miss out. Request while quantities last. You can receive your free subscription of Truth and Life by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.